When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 26th, 2017. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the lunacy of the NBA rumor mill, in which one big trade involving the Bulls' Jimmy Butler actually happened, and others continue to swirl around somewhere in the liminal space between fantasy and reality. We'll also talk to graphic designer Todd Radom, who created the uniforms for the big three, three-on-three basketball league about whether it's time for the NBA to ditch its iconic logo in favor of something a bit more modern. And speaking of old people playing three-on-three, we'll discuss the perils for amateurs and pros alike of playing sports while old. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and a man who possesses zero intact ACLs. One intact ACL. Oh, one? Sorry. One is intact. But as of my old man softball game yesterday, one strained hip flexor, one <laughs> tweaked Achilles, and one slightly tender groin. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to seek treatment for that after the show. Um, <laughs> don't have time to deal with that right now. But uh, we've got a three-man booth this week. With us from the West Coast is Joel Anderson of BuzzFeed. Hey, Joel. Hey, guys. How are you feeling today? Uh, my groin is fine. Um, but uh, I do have some, you know, aches and pains all over, but that's just from, you know, being, I was 40. So, all right, we'll, we'll get into describing our own <laughs> problems with our bodies. <laughs> yeah, and, you almost 40 guys detail. do not have, you know, well, you do have legs to stand yeah. on that are in better condition than mine. Uh, we'll get to, we'll get to <laughs> you being very old later, Stefan. Yeah, thanks. Um, but let's begin with, um, this proposition. The NBA offseason is better than the NBA regular season and playoffs. I'm not sure I actually believe this. I'm just a guy out here stating propositions. But I'm not coming from a place of hating the NBA or even being bored with the NBA. I think pro basketball is wildly entertaining. And yet I also think it's hard, at least for me, to top the thrill of a tweet like this one from ESPN's Mark Stein. 
League sources, colon. <laughs> Pacers and Nuggets have discussed a three-way deal that would land Paul George in Cleveland and Kevin Love in Denver. Oh, that's the good stuff. Just keep it yeah. coming, Mark Stein. Keep it coming, Woj. Um, in the past couple of weeks, two of these notional transactions, I mentioned the Jimmy Butler one in the intro to the show, but two of them actually came to pass, the other being the Celtics trading the number one pick to the Sixers, which Philly used to draft uh, Markel Fultz, and then the Timberwolves got Jimmy Butler from the Bulls. But perhaps most entertaining of all is the fact that the Cavaliers have seemingly been trying to pull off a series of franchise-altering trades in spite of the <laughs> fact that they don't have a general manager, which the analogy that came to mind for me, it's like a self-driving car trying to talk its way out of a speeding ticket. <laughs> Joel, I totally fell for um, the AP's Tim Reynolds tweeted out um, the departure of uh, David Griffin from the Cavs in Comic Sans. And I totally <laughs> fell for it. And I was, I like told everyone at Slate, I was like, all right, I'm writing this up. Like, this has to be a post immediately. And then someone pointed out, I believe it was Ben Mathisley, like, this probably is fake. And it's just actually a really good joke. But um, what's going on with the Cavs, I think, is the uh, purest realization of comic like, sounds. <laughs> of just the, <laughs> the NBA silly season. Yeah, well, I think what happened is that the Warriors have made everyone desperate, right? And in a league this this competitive, um, nobody is willing to like seed championships. Like everybody says, like, well, hey, look, um, you know, the Warriors are going to win for the next four or five years, and that's not actually how that normally happens, right? Teams have like these extended runs that last about three years and then somebody else figures out a figures out a way to topple them or injuries or something. And I think that's like what the Cavs are doing. And, and, and but the Cavs are obviously not alone in that. And so you just see everybody like making, Oh God, how can we get uh, Jimmy Butler here? Okay. Jimmy doesn't want to come here. Uh, now we got to get uh, Paul George. Okay. Paul George doesn't want to come. Well, maybe we can get rid of Kevin Love and we can bring back some other pieces. And it's just, it's the sort of thing that like, you're just going to see over and over again because nobody is willing to allow there to be a Goliath like that in the NBA. It, it, as soon as it happens, people start trying to topple it. But the oxygen of the NBA, Joel, is making sure fans pay attention and care. And it used to be the NFL that we would say has a monopoly on the offseason and they've turned it into a 24-7, yep. 365 proposition. But the NBA is much better at it because it feels genuine. The NFL's attempts to sort of rig the offseason to garner interest have always felt to me really strained. I That's mean, a good point. There's no deal that an NFL team could make other than no. signing a franchise quarterback, which never happens, that could right. actually what? alter the landscape of Correct. the league. Correct. One player can't tip the scales in the NFL like that. You're right, absolutely. Right, so the NBA and the attention that we that we offer it in the offseason is real. I mean, this is really interesting. I mean, in a sport that only has, uh, you know, a few roster spots and even fewer that can make a difference in the fortunes of a franchise and tip the balance of power in the league, these machinations are relevant. So the Celtics are making some very interesting non-moves as they, <laughs> as they have for the last— Several years. I thought Nate Duncan, um, who is a basketball Twitter gadfly, made a really interesting point, which is that the Celtics almost acquired too many assets. It's sort of like if there's one guy who has a, a plate of three tacos and he offers you like, all right, we can split the tacos. 
you can have one and a half tacos. Like that seems like a pretty good deal. Then if you, you know, like another person comes up and they have a dozen tacos and they offer you one and a half tacos, you're like, I need at least six tacos for us to even have, this, <laughs> to have this conversation. So the Celtics with, you know, their own picks, with picks from the Nets, like for the next 500 years, with all of the, those like good young players that they have, it just feels like they've been put in this position where they have so much more, they have like maybe an order of magnitude more to offer than any team in the league. And so I can understand why Danny Ainge would just repeatedly say no and think, you know, we have a chance to get Gordon Hayward or Blake Griffin without having to spend a draft pick or spend anything other than the owner's money, salary cap room. Why don't we just try to do that? And, you know, then if we get Gordon Hayward, we can just like have our tacos and eat them too. But I guess the concern is that if they don't end up getting any of these free agents, they just end up in the same place in they the, were this in the year. Same, yeah. yeah, but with Jason Tatum, who's not who's not a bad player and who Joel knows a lot about. I do, I do. Well, you know, it, it, is it is it actually that bad? Like, I mean, people are talking about the Celtics like they're the Nets, actually, too. Like, I mean, they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. They were the number one seed. They were the number one seed. Their best player got hurt. Like people seem to forget that, like Isaiah Thomas was hurt uh, for a lot of that for that that series. And now they've got like the third pick in the draft. They've got room to sign another potential All Star, All NBA caliber player. It's like, I mean, really, are they that far off? Like I just, it just, it. I I know that again. Like it just seems like we remember it. Like, oh, okay, the the the, the Cavs won four one. They you know. They ran through the playoffs. They didn't have much resistance. But, like, I don't think that actually is what happened. Like, I don't see where the Celtics have to be desperate, you know? Like, you, you never know. And Kel- Kevin Love is always getting hurt. Kyrie Irving is always getting hurt. Who's to say that next May we're not here and that one of those two guys is down and the Celtics hit full strength and they've got one of the, you know, uh, eight, six-foot-eight forwards they have that, you know, they're multi-positional and that maybe they don't have a shot at knocking off the Cavs. Right, because it's not as if the Cavs got a lot better behind their three good players. Right. Well, right. the the issue with the Celtics, though, is, you know, getting back to what you were saying about the Warriors, the Celtics seem like, and maybe the, the Wolves are in that conversation now, but they have the combination of players and draft picks and cap room where – they seem like the franchise that's best positioned to compete with the Warriors, not just the Cavs, like forget the Cavs, um, over the next four or five years. And in order for them to actually legitimately compete, they need to shoot the moon. Like they they need to nail, I guess not shoot the moon. They need to get everything exactly right here. And so every time – you know, that they don't trade for Jimmy Butler or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they don't trade for Paul George. And are they actually going to get Gordon Hayward? And even if they do get Gordon Hayward, is Gordon Hayward going to be good enough to get them over the top? Like, it's almost like the the hopes of the entire Warriors-hating public are just all kind of <laughs> locked onto what the Celtics do. Like, they're, they're the <laughs> only hope of anyone has to knock this team off. Trade for Kristaps Porzingis. I mean, do you do you then package a lot of this if that were real? And the Knicks, of course, are, and their willingness to even well, they consider just, that is, you know, another story. They just have to make a decision at some point. Right. Like, they can't just keep Kick the kicking can. the can down the road. 
it's crazy though, because I mean, and you did throw me this oop on Tatum, but I mean, they who who's ever been more underwhelmed by the having uh, Eastern Conference finalists having the number three pick in the draft, and they're like, oh well, they got to do something, you know? I mean, like, it's Warriors derangement it's, syndrome. It really is, and it's just like, well, I mean, Tatum is a good prospect. Like maybe we don't, you know, we have no idea what he'll be, obviously, but like he's good enough to be the number three pick in a draft that most people thought was a fairly deep one. Like maybe they have gotten better. Maybe he might be enough to or, close or, some or maybe prudence is the better course of action right now. They're already a really good team. They already right. should be able to compete with the current iteration of LeBron and the Cavs. And maybe the smart thing to do is wait another year or two and see how this current group evolves and what becomes available in particularly in 2018 free agency. Yeah. I don't know. Absolutely. I don't know if that's the smart thing to do. Uh, Why? <laughs> well, because as, as Joel was saying, it's not that often that players of the caliber of Butler and George become available and, you know, Porzingis, that just seems like lunacy. So who knows right. if, if that's even a real thing. But I just don't think even if you have as many picks and the Celtics got even more picks by making this trade with the Sixers, and if you have as many picks as they do, you just can't take for granted that you're always going to have the cap situation that they have, that you're going to have the young core that they have. It's sort of like I mean, it's different in baseball um, with, you know, the the health issues that come up with pitching. But like when the Mets made it to the World Series and they had all these great young pitchers and everyone was saying, oh, they're, you know, they're positioned to do this for years to come. This was not like Monday morning, uh, you know, whatever the baseball equivalent of Monday morning uh, relief pitching. Like I had a sense that they weren't going to have the chance that they that they had again that year that like everything has to break exactly right for you to compete for a title. And so I feel like they're, you know, thing, whether it's like an injury to Isaiah Thomas or whether it's, you know, Avery Bradley and Marcus Smart getting hurt or who, who the hell knows. But I just think if you have as promising a team as they have, I just wouldn't feel comfortable waiting until like 2019 because who who the hell knows what's going to happen? Just like go for it now. Yeah, that's actually true. I mean, you, you think about it. Like, how often does it happen that the teams that are really young and you say, "Oh man, you know, give them three or four years and they're going to be there." That that actually works out. People said that about the Thunder forever, right? And it like we, those windows end up being much shorter, and things end up happening in ways that you can't quite foresee at the time. So very rarely happens. I'm not saying that I. I'm not against the Celtics making the move, but I think the idea that like they're doing something wrong by like doubling down, like I think that they have just as much, they they're, they're just as likely to be right by standing pat too, you know, by, by, by making the right move. Speaking of uh, waiting a long time for a team <laughs> to get better, let's talk about the 76ers. <laughs> um, there seems to be a lot of gloating inside Philadelphia that the process has worked, that case closed, this all made sense. Um, look at all the great players we have now, and now we are ready to start playing basketball. I, I'm completely unconvinced that, that that they are ready to do anything other than win 30 games. Well, I mean, they're in better position sure. than they were after they intentionally tanked their entire franchise for how many seasons is it now? Four, four, four. consecutive seasons? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think 
the people like proclaiming victory for the process are correct in one sense, which is that the goal was to acquire promising young talent. But the as we've discussed ad nauseum in this segment, the goal of being an NBA franchise is winning a championship. And so, you know, what they've gotten after, uh, you know, four seasons it's four of players. the process is four promising young players, um, two of which, I guess, are reasonab- in reasonable health or have had reasonable health. <laughs> and um, and then if they play together and, and you know, form like this, you know, good bond and relationship on the court – then maybe they would be one of the best five young cores in the league. Right. I mean, talk about kicking the can down the road. You've kicked it down four four years down the road to start, and you've probably – you're probably talking about another four years of can kicking before you can genuinely compete. The better part of a decade in Philadelphia will have been devoted to assembling and training and keeping your fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, the thing about it is, that, uh, to the extent that the process is a success, at least they have hope, right? Like they didn't even they didn't even have hope as recently as about a year ago. Yeah, and, and hope, so it, hope sells tickets. Hope sells tickets, and so they've got that. They've got a little bit of energy. The one thing about like I don't, and I, maybe I missed this or whatever. And I live on the West Coast, so I get to see Pac-10 basketball a little bit more. But like, I just, I, I I'm still trying to quite understand why Markel Fultz was the presumpt like the 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 no question presumptive number one pick for the entire year. And I mean the reason I say that is because there's never been a guy like this in in recent NBA history, by which I mean clearly the best player on a team that was terrible. You don't you i we've never seen that before. And I actually went back thirty years and looked up old college basketball records to see like if I was crazy about this. And like the worst the worst record I could find for a number one pick was like Michael Thompson in 1978 when Minnesota went 17 and 10 and finished second in the Big Ten. And but other than that, every other best player has like been on a team that like was moderately accomplished. And I don't believe in like wins as like you know the most important statistical consideration. But it's just very weird that like he couldn't even get his team to double digit victories. You know, I, I just I don't. There's just something about that that's like, why that this is the guy? Really, this is the guy that you're excited about? I don't, I don't know. So, you maybe I'm wrong on this. Yeah, I don't have, an, I don't feel like I know enough about Markel Fultz to make any sort of determination. But I think you're getting at the point that there's a lot of um, fantasizing going on here with with him with. I think I saw someone tweeted that Joel Embiid has had more um, leg surgeries than months of being healthy. It's oh, like man. three. It's like three <laughs> versus two in his NBA <laughs> career. Ben Simmons, who's great but missed all of last year, and then you have Dario Saric, who is Dario Saric. I mean, I think the hope the hope thing is um, is what's going on here, and. It all really hinges, or so much of it hinges, on Embiid's health. Right. And that seems to me actually the worst bet out of any of these players is that Joel Embiid is going to be a long-term, you know, healthy 
dude on an NBA court, and that's going to be really sad because he's so talented. But the Sixers are going to make some excellent posters, and they're going to come up with a couple of really good slogans for these guys. Well, they're the feds. They've already come up with a nickname. So, I mean, they've got that going for them. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In 1969, to mark its centennial, Major League Baseball unveiled a new logo, red, white, and blue, with a silhouette of a player. The creation of that logo was led by a graphic designer named Alan Siegel. The NBA liked the baseball logo so much that it asked Siegel to make one for its much smaller league, and that wound up being red, white, and blue with a silhouette of a player. While the player on the baseball logo wasn't anyone specific, Siegel designed the NBA's straight from a photo of Jerry West that was shot by the Los Angeles Lakers team photographer Wen Roberts that Siegel pulled from the archives at Sport Magazine where his friend Dick Schapp worked. Siegel has said that he did 40 or 50 drawings and the NBA commissioner at the time, Walter Kennedy, picked the version that we see today. The league has never confirmed that the elegant dribbling player is Jerry West, probably because it didn't ask West's permission or pay him. And for decades, West has demurred about being the logo, capital T, capital L, partly it seems because the league didn't ask his permission or pay him. In fact, West actually seems kind of bitter about being the logo and now says he would like to see it changed. Here he is talking about it earlier this year on ESPN's The Jump. If I were the NBA, I would be embarrassed about it. I really would. Why? Because I don't know. I just, I just say, I don't like to do anything to call attention to myself. And people say that, and when people say that, that's just not who I am, period. Wow. And if they would want to change it, I wish they would. Uh, in many ways, I wish they would. There are good reasons to modify the NBA logo. The fact that West is white and the modern league is 75% black is just one of them. But there are also risks in tinkering with one of the most iconic images in pro sports. Joining us now to talk about the logo and logos in general is Todd Radom. He has designed logos for the Super Bowl, the NBA and MLB All-Star Games, the Los Angeles Angels, the Washington Nationals, just now the uniforms for the new Big Three Basketball League, and much, much more, including, of course, the Rockettes Spring Spectacular. Todd, thank you for coming on the show. Ah, uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Todd, first analyze for us the NBA logo itself. What makes it so striking? What's made it so enduring? And what are the risks in tinkering with it? Well, I mean, listen, when you talk about a logo that's been around and it has been as visible as the NBA logo has been uh, for nearly a half century now, um, it's a difficult thing to tinker with. It's got uh, the equity, as I said, of you know, billions and billions of brand impressions. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very elegant. Uh, it is very simple. It does a lot with a little, which I think is a very difficult thing to pull off. It's got some movement in a very static shape, and it really is recognized all over the world for being what it is. The opportunity to change the logo, uh, and I don't know how much you know about this piece of it, but what would be the upside to changing it, right? Because it seems like logos are like, they're no longer the sort of constants that they were, you know, maybe a couple decades ago. So like, what would be the upside to changing it? 
Well, I mean, it's a good question. Certainly, uh, the the <laughs> the process of changing something like this relative to what it might have been 10, 20, 30 years ago would be enormous because uh, identities like this are utilized in so many different ways that certainly Alan Siegel and his team could never, ever have imagined nearly a half century ago when uh, they came up with this thing. It would be the equivalent of uh, stopping, you know, those, those aircraft carriers where they put a, uh, you know, essentially a, a rope line across the thing and stop a moving plane? It's like that. So what is the upside? I don't know that there is right now. I think that, uh, Stephen, all of your, your points are well taken in terms of what the league is relative to what it was all those years ago, uh, how you want to position yourself. But, boy, it will be, it would, you know, another metaphor, turning around an ocean liner or, or something. Uh, it's something that's incredibly recognized. What replaces it? Why is it better than what exists now? So the other most famous basketball silhouette logo is the Michael Jordan Jumpman logo. And if that wasn't already a Nike mark, you could make the argument that that should be the NBA logo. There's no more iconic player than Michael Jordan. There's no more iconic Michael Jordan moment than him stretching out with his legs splayed for a dunk. What do you make of the Jumpman logo? And what would, I mean, this is all obviously hypothetical, but would you think that something like that would work as the NBA logo in an alternate universe in which Nike hadn't already monetized that the hell out of it? <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, here we go. When you when you come up with an identity like this, you've got to take the long view. And uh, another part of the world we live in is the fact that we have uh, diminished attention spans. And Andy Warhol, all those years ago, I think, was prescient. Uh, and he could never have imagined the shelf life of, of, uh, of certain things now relative to, again, 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago when the NBA logo was created. What is the NBA now? What do they aspire to be? I would argue the fact that uh, we have a generation of fans, people who uh, I would think the NBA is aspiring to connect with, that never saw Michael Jordan in his prime. Uh, They are watching LeBron James, who is kind of getting into the twilight of his years probably right now, right? So who do you want to be? And do you want to hang your hopes on one specific player? Uh, in the case of Jordan, I don't know that it's a, it's, it's a good move. Listen, as special as Michael Jordan is and was and what he means to the sport, uh, Michael Jordan, I mean, you know, look at the flip side of this. Uh, not a very uh, socially active guy, uh, was criticized, uh, you know, all over the place when he, when he played. Who do you want to hit your wagon to? What do you want to be? If you're going to roll the dice... And if you're going to put all those chips, another metaphor, in the middle of the table with one particular player, who is that? Is it, why wouldn't it be Steph Curry at this point, right? What about a logo of Michael Jordan playing cards? Would that be, <laughs> would that be well, better? it could be golf, but then we're not only mixing metaphors, <laughs> but we're mixing sports. I would argue that the most famous Jordan logo now is the crying Jordan face, even. So. <laughs> that's true. That's, true. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a great point. And will we even, if we have this conversation a year hence, you know, how much traction does that have? It's a great point. Well, one reason to change the logo, Todd, is that Jerry West is clearly not happy 
and hasn't been for 50 years. And whether that's because they didn't pay him or because he is genuinely humble and is embarrassed by being the logo. Can um, I just interject for a second and say that that clip we played where he said the NBA should be embarrassed by it and then listed reasons why he is embarrassed by it. I think that it should be in the dictionary under projection. Correct. <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't make much sense. And, I, and my, my hunch would be that Jerry West is mostly pissed because he never got paid for being the logo. And that makes sense. I'm comparing right now, I'm looking at the NBA logo and then looking at the photo on which it is based. And I have to say the photo is much more dynamic. West's movement is much more aggressive. He's leaning over much more. His feet are, are actively moving forward. Why wouldn't, and I think this would generate a lot of publicity, and obviously, as you point out, Todd, it's a huge rollout, but why not make the shorts longer, make it clear that it's not Jerry West, add some more dynamism to the movement, and maybe tinker with the the, the font and, and the coloring a little bit? And then we, if it doesn't succeed, then you go back to the old logo, and people then people would be happy. And you will have generated an enormous amount of of, of discussion and, and publicity. Sure. As we know that most publicity is good publicity, but maybe not in this case. Um, you know, it, it, you're totally right. It is, uh, it is a much more dynamic pose. And we really do have to think about the fact that in 1969, uh, you know, the way that this was done was, you know, it was literally sketched by hand. Yeah. And then this thing was reproduced on a camera, a photostat machine, you know, way, 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 way before digital even existed. So if you're going to make a slight tweak like that, which really would be an imperceptible tweak, think about how these things are depicted. If we're looking at this as a, an avatar in the case of the web, I mean, this thing is tiny. It has to get big. It has to get small. You know, again, what's the point of that? I suppose you could, but if it's, if it's, so, uh, if it's so tiny, if it's so sort of such a parallel move that it's almost meaningless here too. What's the point of it? I don't know. I think it would enhance the NBA's wokeness. And I think that would be a good thing for the next 50 years. Well, hey, if you're going to do that, then just blow it up. Go to something that's not horizontal or, or vertical, excuse me. Go to something that's not American, red, white, and blue. You want to swap out those colors. I think it's very interesting because over the course of the last 20 years, MLB has uh, swapped out their red, white, and blue for specific team colors, for instance. And yet that thing still holds together, whatever the merits of it are. Uh, in the case of the NBA logo, with few exceptions, you always see it in the NBA colors. And I could regale you with those Pantone colors, but uh, it is very, very locked in. And I think that one of, the, one of the really interesting things that we look at now is identity designers is the fact that these things have to have some freedom of expression, some freedom of movement, some flexibility. The NBA really has opted not to allow for that flexibility. Todd Radom is a graphic designer specializing in sports. You can check out his work at toddradom.com. Todd, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It was great to be with you. I was great to talk to Todd Radom, but, you know, I think we all disagree a little bit. I mean, I would, I think it is high time for the NBA to, as I just said, to sort of enhance its wokeness by demonstrating that it, I mean, this is a league that had a float in the gay pride parade in New York City over the weekend. This is a league that is progressive in its social thinking. And it is a league, as I pointed out, that is 75% black. And I don't think that's going to change going forward. 
why not make your primary iconography more reflective of who you are? I mean, there's value in history, but history isn't, you know, isn't encased in amber. Well, the thing that I the thing that I think is interesting is back to the question of should it be a player? Because I think it would be lame given the history of the and it's a it's a cool logo, it's a classic logo. I concede that. But I I think if you're going to put a twist on it, it would be like weird and lame to have it just be like a basketball going through a hoop. Or, you know, like when you look at the NBA team logos, it's like a basketball on fire, a basketball going through a hoop, a basketball like blah, 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 blah. So I think if you are going to put a twist on it, a modern spin on it, it has to be a player. Totally. And And I think for the reasons that Jalen Rose said, I mean, you want to identify yourself as a player's league. This is what fans care about, the players. So, and I think Steph Curry kind of makes sense as a guy who appeals to everyone who watches the NBA, or if not everyone, like, appeals to a huge um, segment of the audience is somebody who is, like, relatable to, like, kids and old people and is, like, not as good a player as LeBron James, but, like, maybe because he's not as, like, singularly awesome, maybe it, like, kind of makes more sense to... Because he's not an athletic freak? Because he's, he's relatable in size. But right. I also feel like it should be like the Hall of Fame, Joel, where you should not make someone the logo of your league while they're still playing. That seems deeply weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like the also, also sort of like the O.J. Simpson quandary, too. Like he has a lot of life left to live yes. and you hate to get locked into Steph Curry. And then, you know, 30 years from now, you find out that he's not what we thought he was. And so basically we're at a point now where people haven't talked about the logo in about 30 years. Like I don't, you haven't seen it on like shirts or socks or anything like that. Nobody's talked about it except in the, except with the fact that Jerry West doesn't actually want to be the logo anymore. And so like, it's maybe it is time for a little update and a little refreshing, you know, to, to, to refresh it. Maybe, uh, m- maybe not with a player, but it's a global brand now. Like maybe there's something they could do with the globe or, you know, something with, you know, a, a map. I mean, who, who's to say? But just the fact that, like, well, I think it was fine in 1969 and, it, it you know, what was true then is true today. I think that's just sort of not a – I don't want to say it's a cop-out because I don't think that's kind, but that's what I'm thinking. Well, how lucky did the NBA get that Jerry West ended up being a career executive, yeah. a successful one, someone that you'd be proud of to have as the symbol of your organization? Um, and that's why I would argue against having it be identifiable to any player, because you don't know. You don't build statues to live people because it's a really bad idea. Um, Unless it's Shaq. <laughs> <laughs> the Shaq logo I thought was like super cool when I was 12 years old. Yeah. The one where he's yeah. uh, he's both dunking, hanging on the yeah. ring, both legs up. Yeah. 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 The NBA Catwatch logo is also very cool if you haven't seen that. Just throwing it out there. Maybe make the cat NBA Catwatch logo the NBA logo. <laughs> but I think there's so many opportunities for like trolling and pettiness here. Like what if the NBA made LeBron blocking Iguodala the logo, but then just denied that that's actually what it was depicting? <laughs> like, Which is what they did with West, right? So yeah. why not? It's like this could be this could be any player chasing down and blocking another player. I think like, Muggsy Bugs dribbling through <laughs> Manute Bull's legs would be a good logo. <laughs> I like I like all of these options. Maybe multiple logos, one for every occasion. <laughs> NBA China, you have an Asian player be the logo. You can do all sorts of things. Yao Ming could be the logo in China. Um, yeah, maybe. 
I, <laughs> I think you just need one Lego, dude. Uh, all right. I think we did it. I think we solved it. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On Sunday in Barclays Center in Brooklyn, an announced crowd of more than 15,000 people came out to see the inaugural four games of the Big Three Basketball League and to see the league's most famous player, 42-year-old Allen Iverson, make exactly one basket. The playing part is not going to be what you expect. I'm 42 years old. I've been retired for seven years, Iverson said. The only reason that I get out there for the couple minutes that I do get out there is for the fans. You're not going to see the Allen Iverson of old out there, of old being the operative phrase. It was a success for Iverson, though, in that he did not injure himself catastrophically. Um, What fans did see, in addition to uh, a couple of four-point shots— in a big three innovation. They saw injuries to 37-year-old Corey Maggette, 39-year-old Kenyon Martin, and the relatively spry 32-year-old Rashad McCants. And if you listen closely to the following clip, you'll hear Jason White Chocolate Williams, who's 41, writhing on the ground in pain after a non-contact leg injury. You might also hear your own mortality. Let's listen. <laughs> 17 points for Davis. And Williams fouled hard. It takes a real pro like Gus Johnson to really lay out. You know, you don't want to talk over a guy just screaming in pain, lying on the floor of the Barclays Center. Just great, great job, Gus Johnson, on the non-call there. So <laughs> I am the biggest fan of the big three of anyone. But, you know, that's kind of depressing <laughs> just to watch. There, there's something different about, like, an old-timers baseball game compared to an old-timers basketball game, Joel, especially in this case where they're actually it, – it's almost worse if they're trying. It's a league. It's, hard, it's a league. Like they're not – just based on the highlights that I saw, they're showing the games on tape delay. But based on the highlights, you know, to their credit, they're actually trying, which is yeah. danger, dangerous to your health if you're, if you're an old <laughs> basketball player. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that – I'm a fan of the big three. I'm a fan of all these like – you know, renegade, you know, basketball leagues that have ever existed, going all the way back to like the Magic Johnson All Star Slam and Jam in 1992. Um, but I just think that anybody that saw the old Legends Classic, like the the old time, we basically call the old timers game during NBA All Star Weekend, and it ran for like a decade, and saw like Norm Nixon and David Thompson blow out their knees <laughs> in succession in a game like. Just kind of be like, I don't, you know, watching your old heroes play basketball isn't quite, like, you get to actually watch them get bad in real time already. But then, like, <laughs> just revisit them three or four years later and see how much worse and how much less explosive they are now. You know, a, I just, when, I, when they, ha- when they haven't even been playing for those three or four years, right? It's, 
It's a lesson in right. trend lines. It's a <laughs> right. lesson in trend lines. It's like, all right, if you stop drawing the line, then you pick it up in four or five years. Where is it? Oh, it's where, where, where you'd expect. My favorite quote was from Katino Mobley. I don't even know if it was actually a quote, but this uh, story, oh, here it is. Katino Mobley was completely believable when he said he had, quote, no clue when he last played competitive basketball. <laughs> <laughs> but the great thing about the big three is that you're not sure that some of these guys weren't in the NBA a year ago. Like you see these names and we talked about this before. It's that it's that emotional trigger, that sensory thing that happens in your brain. It's like, oh, Katino Mobley. Cool. Right. So you right. want to yeah. see Katino Mobley. But the risk with all of these legends games and all-star and, and old-timers games is that you really don't want to see Katino Mobley play basketball now unless you're playing with him at the Y on Saturday afternoon because then it's kind of fun and it's cool. But I'm not sure I want to go pay $45 to sit in the Barkley Center to watch him play. Um, but that's the risk with all of these things, isn't it? It's that we don't want to see these athletes diminished. We want to remember them when they were good and whether you – were a Katino Mobley fan or not, he represents oh, the we ideal we of a were. great athlete. And it's just sad <laughs> to see them at even a slightly diminished level, especially when they're lying on a basketball court screaming. So I managed to find a clip, like like this was some great feat of journalism. I managed to find a clip. <laughs> I, I found a clip of the 1993 Legends Classic on Classic. YouTube. And I cut a clip, and there are a couple of moments, and you'll know when you hear them, that make this clip extremely special for the Hangup audience. So uh, let's play that now. It'll be Wilkes and Bobby Jones up front, Zelmo Beatty at center, Calvin Murphy, and Hot Rod Hunley, the oldest player at 58 years old, will be starting at guard. The rules, two 12-minute halves. We have oxygen at both benches. <laughs> Running clock stops only for foul shots in the last minute of the game, and in case of a tie, sudden death, as we like to call it, sudden victory. Interestingly, if that were to happen... So there are actually three <laughs> moments in that clip that would be the best moment in any other clip. Number one, Zelmo Beatty. Number two, we have oxygen at both benches. And number three, not wanting to refer to sudden death as sudden death due to fear that someone will actually die. Well, it, it, it may, it, this, this may have happened like a few years after Pete Maravich died during a pickup game too, right? Like, right. Uh, and I wonder if that was it all on their mind at that point. But yeah, it's just, I mean, how, I mean, it, 58-year-old Calvin. Did they say Calvin Murphy was 58? No, who I old, think Hot Rod Hunley. He was more of a yeah, cold, he was mean, more of a cold rat at that point. And yet there's a senior golf tour. I was channel surfing yeah. the other day and I saw John McEnroe playing Andy Roddick. Why is that okay? And watching yeah. Katino Mobley and Hot Rod Hundley go at it is uh is, <laughs> is, is, is more threatening to our our sense of uh of what's right in the world and our fear that someone will die. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you, basketball players, as much as anybody else, they represent this sort of athleticism, like this athletic ideal. Few people get to be six four. Fewer still get to be six four and athletic like a mountain lion. And then, like, to watch them erode slowly and realize, oh wow, not only are they like less athletic, but they've got bad backs, they've got bad knees. Like, and they've got all these other, like, ailments that most people don't end up having if they get to a certain age. And I just, man, I, you know, and I keep, my, my commentary on this segment has mostly been, man, that's really sad. But, like, watching Allen Iverson be slow, not not only not want to play basketball, like, it's not, practices are not just the problem for him now. Like, the games <laughs> are a problem for him now. And, like, to watch him out there look slow and, like, sluggish and go one for six, which is, 
um, sort of in keeping with like his previous performances, but still, it's just, it's really, really sad. I am disappointed in you, Joel, that you answered Stefan's question of what's different between a senior golf tour and a senior <laughs> basketball league. Like, what is the difference there? Like, that is not a question that deserves a serious answer, but. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to point out that over this weekend, this past weekend, Ichido became the oldest player to play center field in the major leagues. And Kevin Millar, 45 years old, formerly of the Boston Red Sox, appeared in one at-bat for the St. Paul Saints, the Independent League St. Paul Saints, the team that he uh, started with in 1993, the Saints' very first season. He came up for one plate appearance, and he jacked a home run. Ichido's batting like 200. Kevin Millar jacked one at age 45. Kevin Millar does not look like a good 45 either, I have to say. <laughs> Nobody will ever beat, and we have a clip of this too, uh, Luke Appling hitting a home run in an old-timers game at uh, age 75. Now, granted, the fences were a little short. It was like a 250-foot home run. Yeah. But we'll okay. give the like extremely old dude credit. Let's listen to that uh, old-timers game highlight from the 80s. in the Atlanta Braves organization facing Warren Spahn. Deep to left field. Way back there. Home run. Luke Kaplan. 75 years old. Oh, you gotta love it. Is that great, Red? He still managed to make good around the bases faster than David Ortiz. There's a 77-year-old guy that <laughs> plays in my Sunday old man softball league here in Washington. The great quote about old-timers games comes from Bill Veck, who didn't like old-timers games. And he understood why old-timers games were a terrible idea. And he said this, it is, after all, an exercise in mortality. I could never understand how it either entertained the fans or benefited baseball to show the great old names as wheezing, balding, arthritic old men. <laughs> Guilty as charged on all counts. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, let's move on to after balls. And David Epstein actually wrote a piece for Slate during the last Olympics that made the opposite argument of this last segment that was essentially there's no reason physiologically why the limits of age that we've traditionally perceived in sports need to be the limits. There's Kristen Armstrong, the cyclist, who won a gold medal at um, a day before she turned 43 years old. Sprinter Kim Collins uh, broke 10 seconds on the 100 meters uh, at the age of 40. And there's a guy, Ed Whitlock, who at age 85 ran a 150-47 in the half marathon, which is about eight and a half minutes per mile. 
at the age of 85. So I think if you run a half marathon at an eight and a half minute pace, you, sir, deserve an afterball to be named after you. (laughs) Ed Whitlock, this is your moment. Joel, you have an Ed Whitlock for us. I do. Uh, This is about a book I just read. Uh, And I will start off with a quote here. And it says, no one has ever made a decision because of a number. They need a story. And that's from famed psychologist Danny Kahneman. Uh, The reason Danny Kahneman is important is because he and Amos Tversky were parascientists whose work is at the center of Michael Lewis's most recent book. It's called The Undoing Project. And yes, that's Michael Lewis of Moneyball, Blindside, and Big Short fame. Um, Kahneman and Tversky were both former war heroes. They were at the top of their game professionally and by happenstance found themselves working in the psychology department at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 1968. They were very different people. Kahneman was a Holocaust survivor who immigrated to Palestine with his family. He was a worrywart, and he was not terribly social. Meanwhile, Tversky was born in Israel, an optimist, and pretty much the life of any and every party. Um, They arrived at friendship through conflict. Kahneman had invited Tversky to his seminar on campus to discuss some experiments that Tversky had been working on and how people learn new information. Uh, The experiments were supposed to demonstrate that ordinary people were close to being rational, that they thought like what they called intuitive statisticians. And everyone had fallen under Tversky's sway up to that point. And it was a common phenomenon. Everybody loved this guy, but not Kahneman. Kahneman said that the experiments were, quote, just incredibly stupid and demonstrated nothing of the sort. And Tversky, known for never losing an argument, lost this one. But it actually made him want to work with Kahneman. And from there came forth a collaboration that eventually won Kahneman a Nobel Prize in economics. Now, Tversky would have almost certainly have won it too had he not died of cancer at the age of 59 in the 19, I think it was 1996. Uh, another thing I learned from this book is that Nobels aren't awarded posthumously, which just seems like something that like they could, you know, they could adjust that if they wanted to, but maybe not. Um, anyway, uh, a couple of things I took from this book. Be open to the idea that you're wrong or that you don't know at all. Michael Lewis, in fact, stumbled across the story of these guys while reading a review of Moneyball in the New Republic. The reviewers had liked had liked Moneyball, but mentioned that Lewis had mentioned had missed the underlying work that fueled B- Billy Bean's success. Um, and so Lewis didn't take offense to this. He said it intrigued him, and he went about looking into the work of these psychologists. And here we have this book. Uh, the other piece of this: humans, particularly those in sports still aren't great at making decisions. And this comes into play uh, in the same week, in the same podcast that we're talking about, like the NBA and the draft and free agency. And I should mention that the reason I came across this book is there was an excerpt published in Good Old Slate, which focused on uh, the general manager of my hometown, Houston Rockets. And Daryl Morey was known for using behavioral economics and making draft picks. Maury missed so badly in the same year on Joey Dorsey, a second round pick out of Memphis. And he picked Dorsey over DeAndre Jordan, for instance, who was in the same who was from Houston and available in the same draft that it made him reevaluate his process. Uh, for instance, Marcus Gasol. One once upon a time, Maury's draft model had loved him. But do you know why he talked himself out of the pick? His scouts found a photograph of Marcus Gasol shirtless and they called him man boobs. So Maury banned nicknames as a result. He also went on to ban interracial comparison. So, for instance, you couldn't compare Reggie Miller to Stephen Curry. For You had to compare Stephen Curry to, like, uh, Mark Price, right? Um, but anyway, as Lewis pointed out, simply knowing bias isn't enough to overcome it. So we have a whole draft language that traffics in these nebulous qualities like athleticism, leadership, frame, intangibles. Like, we have all these things that are working against us from making good decisions, so with that in mind, 
the Rockets just drafted a guy named Isaiah, Isaiah Hartstein, a seven foot one power forward from Germany. He was the 41st overall pick of the draft. And I think he's going to be a steal. I think Daryl Morey did it again. How can you not look at that guy and see Daryl Nowitzki? Forget the numbers. This guy's got a great story. Awesome. Uh, yes. Stefan, what is your Ed Whitlock? Well, Steve Russian of Sports Illustrated has written a memoir about growing up in Bloomington, Minnesota in the 1970s when the town was home to the Vikings, the Twins, and the North Stars. The book is titled Stingray Afternoons, and there's an excerpt in the current issue of the magazine. It's not entirely clear from the excerpt what the book is about, but I liked his introductory stream of consciousness into his childhood because his childhood sounds a lot like mine. Every last totem of Russian's life in suburban Minneapolis and there are a lot of totems in the excerpt because Russian is a totem name dropper. Every totem of his is identical to mine in suburban New York City. We both grew up saying one Mississippi, two Mississippi. We couldn't wait for Friday nights and Mary Richards washing her Mustang in a Fran Tarkenton jersey. We played paper football, drank Hawaiian punch out of Dixie cups, sucked on candy cigarettes, and watched Saturday morning cartoons on wood panel Zenith televisions. We memorized the one-line nuggets on the flip side of Topps Baseball cards and knew where to find the secret stash of playboys in the neighborhood. We hit tennis balls with Wilson T2000s and we rode the Schwinn Stingray of Russian's book title. Mine was the same color as the one pictured in the magazine, grass green, high handlebars, banana seat. Now every generation of course has its childhood totems. These just happen to be ours and I could add a bunch from our 1970s lives, knock hockey, electric football, Hot Wheels tracks, Panasonic Toodaloop radios, Swanson TV dinners in front of this week in pro football with Pat Summerall and Tom Brooks. Brookshire. I'm willing to bet all of those are in Russian's book, too. Russian also describes a game he played with his friend Kevin called Garage Door Baseball. Tennis balls pitched from the end of the driveway, hit with bat day bats. Here are Russian's rules. A hit that bounces in the driveways and out, a ball that one hops in the street as a single, any drive that carries the street and lands in Carl Johnson's yard as a double. If a ball should carry him off the Johnson's house, it's a triple. And when one of us, usually Kevin, hits it squarely onto or even over the Johnson's roof, it's a home run. We played stickball at my elementary school, Prospect Hill, tennis balls, and aluminum bats. On the ground, past the pitcher was a single, off the blacktop into the grass was a double, past the big tree a triple, over the low wall and onto the baseball field a home run. But the key to stickball as we played it, the art of the game, and what Russian's piece moved me to remember and to share here was the ball itself. No one told us that throwing a curveball was bad for you, and if you couldn't throw one yet with a real baseball, you could throw one with a tennis ball especially if you did what stickball players knew to do, burn the fuzz off of the ball. If someone didn't bring a proper ball, usually wedged in the center of the spokes of his bike, we would prepare a few. The ball had to be fully wrapped in a piece of notebook or construction or mimeograph paper. Then you lit the thing on fire with a Bic lighter or matches. If you didn't get a full fuzz burn on the first try, you rewrapped and burned it some more until it was equally shorn of fuzz all around the ball. Would you throw the burning ball into the neighbor's yard? No. No, no, no. This was very <laughs> This was very businesslike. With no, a no. with a bottle full of gasoline? No, we would not do that. We, <laughs> okay. were, we, were, we were good, honest suburban kids. We were not getting into mischief. Um, the beauty of the burn ball, though, Josh, it totally ups your velocity okay. because 
there's a reduction in wind resistance. But the defining characteristic of a burned tennis ball is that it curves like crazy. Not as much as a wiffle ball, not talking like six-foot breaks, but definitely two- or three-foot breaks. So when I write my childhood memoir, there will be a long scene dedicated to the day that I was playing stickball with my buddy Robbie Smith, who was better known as Kojak, in a one-on-one game on court one at Prospect Hill. I had never beaten Kojak, but I was up eight to seven in the bottom of the last inning. With a man on first, I break off a curveball with a burned ball. Kojak rips a hard bouncer to my right. I grab it with my outstretched right hand, leap like Jeter two decades later, fling the ball back toward the box. It ricochets off of Kojak's plastic replica helmet. I can't remember which team because he had like 10 of them, and I was very envious of the fact that he had like 10 of them, (laughs) and goes into the strike zone. That was a double play in stickball, two outs per team, game over. My mom pulls up to the school, honks the horn, and I run to the car in victory. Top that, Steve Russian. Great moment. Triumph. Total triumph. triumph. Suburban New York. Josh, what's your Ed Whitlock? Last year, ESPN ran a 30 for 30 short called Iron Virgin about the longtime LA Lakers power forward AC Green who played 1,278 out of 1,281 games in 16 NBA seasons, all while abstaining from sexual activity. The eight-and-a-half-minute documentary short, which is narrated by Will Ferrell, features Lakers superfan Lou Gossett Jr. discussing losing his virginity at age 14 under the boardwalk in Coney Island. His review, it was terrible. Uh, The doc also includes a very brief clip of a music video that the very Christian abstinence town in green recorded in the 1990s. It is called It Ain't Worth It, and it features a group that called itself Athletes for Abstinence. Among them were Washington cornerback Daryl Green, no relation, the Detroit Lions' Barry Sanders, the Green Bay Packers' Reggie White, and the San Antonio Spurs' David Robinson. So you can still order... This video, along with, I think, some bonus material, some bonus don't-have-sex material from the AC Green Foundation website, um, you have to keep in mind when this was created. This was a little bit more than two years after uh, Green's longtime teammate Magic Johnson made his announcement that he was HIV positive. And so a lot of the messaging in the tape is that literally that if you have – sex, then you could die. Um, but also, you know, teen pregnancy is bad and other STDs. Um, in a 1994 interview with Jet Magazine, Green said that the video's lesson of sexual restraint is an age-old message with renewed vigor. And then mm. he also added um, with regard to how he, um, you know, kept his strength uh, despite temptation – I compare it to a steak and a hamburger. I expect the best for me. So as tempting as that hamburger may look to me at the time, I know there's something better for me if I wait, that being steak, presumably, although he didn't say. (laughs) So that's all preamble because I am now going to treat you to some clips from this music video. Uh, Let us begin near the beginning. Let's roll that clip. You know, that guy would be pretty good if he didn't think he was God's gift to women. You know, guys like that never win because they're always thinking with the wrong part of their body. Game. Next. All right. So the guy is saying that 
people like that never win because they think what the wrong part of their body is Barry Sanders, who never won a Super Bowl. Keep that in mind. <laughs> and then the guy who he's saying never wins because he thinks of the wrong part of their body, if you, you know, hear in the background, it says game because he just won the game. That's like, that's what we call a self own Barry Sanders. All right, moving on to the next uh, sequence from the It Ain't Worth It music video. So many men, so little time. Girl, I know what you mean. Oh, look at the muscles on them. Oh, gorgeous. Oh, I want that one right there. And I'm going to get him. Mm-hmm. Come on, girl, let's go. Mm-hmm. I was expecting the other woman to say, let me say C. Green, you're not getting him. <laughs> that would have been that would have been much better, much funnier. So this video, you might be thinking, this is an extremely retrograde idea. It's actually even more retrograde than you thought it was. The the depiction in the video is essentially that men are being besieged by women who just want to have sex with them just constantly in the middle of basketball games. And so <laughs> are they, they standing just, on a court? They're they're on a court playing like, you know, three on three, as one does. Uh, maybe maybe four big on three. four or big five three. on five. Big three. Big very big, big, big three. three. Um, and there yeah. are just women. With, there are right. women under the basket saying this stuff, and the men, the the less AC greenish men, are being distracted by their banter in the very like classic cartoony way, where Owen's like, "Oh, look at that guy," and then he gets like hit in the head with the basketball. So, the abstinence-minded will not commit as many turnovers on the court because they're just not paying attention to the women. All right. Moving on, let's listen like to what happens when the music starts and evaluate, does AC Green have bars? Here are my favorite parts in order. The government's latex. So it's like condoms are a government plot, essentially, according to AC Green. He also... And and sort of given the limited, uh, you know, palette that he's working with, I guess he had no choice. He rhymes sex with abstinence, which is, <laughs> you know, off rhyme, I guess. Are the lyrics published somewhere or did you have to listen to it multiple times and write them down? I just used my ears. I couldn't find the lyrics written down anywhere. I just used my ability to understand what AC Green is saying when he's talking about safe sex. All right. The last clip we have is uh, Barry Sanders. I think this might be the only um, attempt at hip hop in Barry Sanders' career. So let's see how he did. Oh, no. <laughs> I want to win it. Did it. I want to crush it. But this safe sex talk, you can't trust it. Me and mine, him and his, yo, I educated. Those are your info needs. Uh, 
hearing Barry Sanders say Jimmy Hat just makes me never want to have sex again. The video, the video totally <laughs> works. Yeah, it worked. It can work for you too. If you go to acgreen.com, it only costs $25 or free on YouTube. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort and our intern is Max Cohen. And thank you to Joel Anderson for coming on the show today. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. Uh, to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, you can go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can also email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out I Have to Ask, a weekly interview show with Slate's Isaac Chotner. Last week, Isaac talked to Obama foreign policy advisor Ben Rhodes about the threat Russia poses to American democracy. You can find that episode along with interviews of Chuck Schumer, Chris Hayes, and Washington Post White House reporter Ashley Parker at slate.com slash ask. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And remember the oxygen tanks on the bench at your old timers game. And thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.